Lord. Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. The book of Revelation, chapter 20. We left off this morning with the glorious, powerful, bright return of Jesus Christ to this planet. And as he comes down from heaven riding a white horse with, with a sharp sword out of his mouth, with fla- eyes, flame of fire, and with many diadems upon which is written a name which nobody knew but him, and on his robe and thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords, he comes and he encounters the armies of the nations of the world. They are set in rebellion against him to kill and to dethrone the Lord Jesus Christ. But simply his appearance in glorious light causes the flesh, the eyes, and the tongue to dissolve from the rebellious force. It was mentioned after the service, which I thought was quite insightful. Why would God have the eyeballs dissolve and the tongue dissolve? Maybe because he created us to look upon him, that we would, with our eyes, look upon him. And in the rebellion, they refused to look upon the Savior, so he simply dissolved their eyes out of their eye sockets. And with our tongue, we were formed to confess the praises of the glories of Jesus Christ, right? And since they refused to do it, the Lord simply dissolved the the tongue right out of their mouth. He is a just God. He is a holy God. And he will make war against sin. And he wins. But... From Adam and Eve in the garden, God has offered grace upon grace upon grace. As he gave his only begotten son to die on the cross for our sins, he has made salvation open for everyone who would believe. Every man, woman, boy, or girl who would believe can have eternal life. But those who reject with hardened hearts will seek to raise up their weapons against him to kill him. And that's where we left the story this morning. There is in our time right now just a thought. There's a poem, an old poem that I found. I'd like to read it to you. God's plan made a hopeful beginning, but man spoiled his chances by sinning. We trust that the story will end in God's glory, but at present, the other side is winning. Isn't that kind of true? We know God is glorified at the end. We know he wins. But right now, in our present day, it seems like evil is winning in the world. It seems like the devil is winning. And you know what? He has his time on earth right now. But we are going to find in the text tonight that he is defeated already. And the ultimate demise of the devil himself is found in chapter 20. So take your Bibles with me as we walk through this text. And we look and see what is going to happen in the future after the glorious return of Jesus Christ to this earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to the scriptures now, our hearts are full of adoration and praise for the cross and for our Savior who died for us and rose from the dead. We love him. We worship and adore him. We look forward to seeing him face to face, possibly very soon. We are also thankful, Father, for the word of God, which is truth. It is tonight going to teach us. I believe it's going to convict and challenge us in, really, I think, the very recesses of our hearts as we realize we have the glorious gospel of Christ, this treasure in earthen vessels that we want to declare to the ends of the earth. So tonight, Father, stir us up. Give us boldness and passion to overcome fear and overcome 
whatever might cause us to be silent about Christ, because we want the world to know our glorious Savior. So I pray, Father, that tonight we would look inward and evaluate our hearts and our minds, that we might be pleasing in your sight. Thank you again for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ by which we live and stand. Amen. Revelation chapter 20. You can picture Jesus Christ now on earth, in body form, on a white horse, victorious over the enemy. We know that the beast and the false prophet have been cast alive into the lake of fire. We get to watch that. We'll be right behind the Lord. We'll look at him ahead of us, and we'll see the beast and the false prophet, the Antichrist who ruled the world, and the false prophet that caused the world to worship him. And they will be cast bodily into the lake of fire. They are the first ones in the lake of fire. Nobody will join them now for a thousand years. But what happens next? Revelation 20 tells us as the story continues. Then I saw, John says, an angel coming down from heaven. Another angel. Remember now, John is back on planet Earth, like you and I will be. And he looks up, and an angel comes out of the heavens, just kind of following the path that we just took, and he has a key to the bottomless pit. Now, we've been introduced to the bottomless pit before. When it was opened, a horde of demons came out of the bottomless pit. Remember Apollyon and Abaddon, uh, those names of the evil one that came out of, out of the pit? This angel has the key to the bottomless pit, and he has a great chain in his hand. We're going to see this. We're going to watch this mighty angel come from heaven with a key and a chain. And we will know, because we've studied the word, we'll know what's going to happen. Verse 2, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, he is the deceiver, the diablos, and satanos, he is the satan, and bound him for a thousand years. All it takes to, to defeat Satan is another angel. You see, God has permitted the devil to roam and to tempt and to deceive, and he wants our hearts loyal to him and faithful to the word of God. So when Satan comes and tempts and deceives, he's permitted to do that, but we have been given every resource to combat. We can flee from the devil, right? Resist him. We can have the armor of God and the sword of the Spirit. All it takes is another angel from heaven to come down, and at the very word of God, Satan has no power. And he is bound, and he is cast into this bottomless pit. Verse 3, he cast him into the bottomless pit. By the way, what is the definition of a bottomless pit? When will the devil hit bottom? Never. So if he's falling at, what, 9.8 meters per second squared, if he's falling down in this bottomless pit, bound in a chain, so he, he's just like falling, maybe head first or side, who knows, he's falling and falling and falling and falling, and after one day, he's still falling, and after two days, he's still falling, and after 100 days, still falling, it's a bottomless pit. When does he hit bottom? Doesn't. So after a thousand years, he's still hitting, he's still going down, down. I mean, he's just descending for a thousand years in a bottomless pit, bound up. This angel cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him. Here's why. So that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. There's going to be one more opportunity for Satan to come out of this bottomless pit to deceive the nations and to raise up an army to defeat the Lord Jesus. He has tried over and over, and he will be given one more time after the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus. Now in verse 4, 
Uh, by the way, this thousand year, as you know from my previous teaching, I believe this to be a literal 1,000 year kingdom of Jesus on this earth. Jesus will set up his kingdom. He will regenerate this earth so it will be back to the state like it was in the Garden of Eden. He will be seated in Jerusalem on the throne in body form, the King of kings and Lord of lords on this earth for 1,000 years. The book of Isaiah tells much about this. The lion will lie down with the lamb. The child will play by a a cobra's hole or a a poisonous snake's hole. Uh, We know it's going to be a thousand years of peace, justice. There's going to be righteousness. People with flesh bodies will be able to build houses and live in them. They'll plant gardens and eat from them. It's going to be a time of blessing and prosperity. And if anybody rebels against the Lord and doesn't change their heart, doesn't submit to him with his rod of iron, he kills them. And if they're 100 years old, they're considered just a child. Because in the millennial kingdom, people will live to be 1,000 years old. So when you die at 100, you're still just a kid. But that's a little bit about this 1,000 years. But it is, I think, a literal... 1,000 years. We'll be hard-pressed to find a church that teaches that anymore. I want you to know that the mainstream teaching of Christianity is that there is no millennium, that right now we're living in the millennium and Christ is ruling a spiritual kingdom from heaven and things are getting better and better and better and better. They would like you to believe that, but that's not true. Paul says... Things are waxing worse and worse until the coming of Christ. This here, as you read these numbers, verse 2, a thousand years he's bound. Verse 3, he, will, he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. It is a literal 1,000 years. And it is a literal earthly kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament to Abraham and, to other, and through the prophets, and it will be fulfilled when Christ comes back to this earth. Why does he need to rule for a thousand years? Jesus needs to rule on this planet because God gave it to Adam and Eve to rule. Remember in Genesis, God said, Adam, subdue, tread, and have dominion over all created things. When Adam fell, he gave it to Satan, and Satan became the prince of the power of the air. Jesus has to take it back and show what a man will do to bring honor and glory to God. He is the God-man. He is the second Adam who will rule over creation properly. Adam fell and into sin and gave the empire away, Satan is, or Jesus is going to show what a true man of God will be able to do on the throne. So that's coming up next, verse 4. And I saw thrones, John said. I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Well, who sat on the thrones? I think in the context, because chapter 19 flows right into 20, the they are the armies of Christ that came with him. You and I are the armies clothed in fine linen coming down with Christ from heaven, and we will sit on thrones and rule over the nation of Israel. Take your Bibles. Go with me to hold your place there. Go to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, Jesus will have just finished talking to a rich young ruler. And the disciples are concerned because it's going to be hard for anybody to get into heaven or a rich man to get into heaven. Verse 25, the disciples are astonished in Matthew 19. Who then can be saved? Jesus looks at the disciples and said, With men this is impossible. Man cannot save himself, but with God all things are possible. I love Peter, don't you? Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? I love Peter. 
He just says it like he's thinking. He doesn't stop to think. Here, he left his father. He left his fishing boats, his fishing industry. He left a regular paycheck, and he's an itinerant preacher following Jesus, being sent out to, in the, into the world. Peter's like, well, wait a minute, Jesus. We've left everything and followed you. What are we going to get in the end game? You know, what's in it for us? Listen to what Jesus says in chapter 19 of verse 28. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, the regeneration is the millennial empire when Jesus regenerates this planet, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, that'll be in Jerusalem, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. Judging who? The 12 tribes of Israel. So the bride of Christ, the church, will be ruling over the nation Israel, who is living on this planet during the millennial kingdom. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Hey, there you go. Hold everything loosely in this earth. Anything that's of this temporal sphere, just hold loosely, as I said this morning. Don't grasp it tightly and make it your life. Make Christ your life and eternal glory your riches. But look at what he says here in verse 30. But many who are first will be what? Shall be last. And the last shall be first. You want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? What do you need to be here on earth in the church age? The slave of all. You're looking out for the interests of others. You're preferring others and honoring others before yourself. Those are the ones who will be given honor and, and, and uh, praise in heaven, it's not the ones on earth who are elevating and puffing up themselves and making a big deal about themselves. It is we are nothing. Christ is everything. We are nothing, right? Here's what I think is interesting as I studied this text over and over. Remember, Jesus told the disciples, you, you've left everything. You'll be seated on thrones. There'll be 12 thrones, and you'll, you, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones and rule over Israel. Isn't it interesting that in chapter 20, verse 20, look at chapter 20, verse 20. In the same context, with that ringing in their ears, what's the mother of Zebedee's sons, the mother of James and John? She goes to Jesus, and what does she ask? Jesus, let my two sons sit on thrones. Where? One on your right and one on your left. Where did she get the thought of their sons sitting on thrones? Jesus just said, you follow me, you'll sit on thrones and you'll rule and reign. And then Zebedee's, uh, James and John's mother, Jesus, can you, you know, out of the 12 thrones, there's got to be two next to you, one on the right, one on the left. Could you get James on one side, John on the other, please? But listen, we also know in Mark chapter 10, James and John are asking the same thing. So the whole, it's a kind of family thing. James and John are like, Jesus, would you do anything we ask you? Hmm, Sure. We'd like to sit at your one at your one, one at your right, one at your left. Meanwhile, the other ten disciples, what are they thinking? Are they thinking, those who are first shall be last, and the last shall be first? No, they're thinking, we should have asked for that. Oh, man, now I'm going to lose out my position. And they're fighting over one another. And they're fighting over a throne when they really should be fighting over serving one another. And often in the church, we're fighting for ourselves and our rights and our privileges, and we're not fighting to serve one another. In humility. That's where, I think that's where James' mother got it. James and John's mother got it. She had overheard Jesus saying, you guys are going to sit on thrones someday and rule and reign. Hey, 1 Corinthians 6, 
says that in the church age, you and I will rule over the angelic realm. Do you know where you're being trained to rule over the angelic realm and over the tribes of Israel here? Right here. Right here in this setting. Coming to Sunday school, teaching Sunday school, serving in the nursery. Yeah, serving in the nursery is training you to rule and reign in the future kingdom of the Lord. Do you know that? Being here, showing up, coming out to show up to a worship service is training you for faithfulness for the future kingdom. Because the Lord said, if you're faithful in little things, these just are little things, you're faithful in a little, he will reward you with much. You'll have much responsibility. Because the Lord knows, if they will follow me when they cannot see me, then when I'm in front of them, I can give them much responsibility. I love it. You know, we can't see him, but if you're faithful now to all these little things, wow, you'll be found faithful in many of the big things in the kingdom to come. But do you see the whole idea of sitting on the thrones? Let's go back to Revelation 20. John saw the thrones, and he sees them sitting on it. I think the church age, representative of the church age, like we saw in Revelation 4, seated on thrones, and judgment was committed to them. But then John sees in verse 4, he saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. These are all the tribulation saints. John sees them. They were beheaded on earth, but now he sees them raised up in glory because they've been bodily resurrected. It's called the first resurrection. There's two resurrections, everybody. The first resurrection is believers. The second resurrection is the unsaved. There's only two. Now, the first resurrection takes place in different times. The first resurrection of all the believers happens like this, according to 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 24. Jesus was raised up first to body form. The second group to get their glorified body is you and I, the church. The rapture will take place, and our bodies, if we're alive, will be transformed in the moment. And those who are dead will be raised up. We will be given glorified bodies first out of all humanity. What an honor. What an honor to receive a glorified body. Adam and Eve and Noah and Esther and all of those people in the Old Testament, according to Daniel 12, they will be raised up after the seven years are completed. So some seven years after us, all the Old Testament men and women and all the tribulation believers, as this text says, are raised up in glorified form. So now every believer from Old and New Testament in glory, in a glorified body. It's called the first resurrection. Here's how John says it through the Holy Spirit. Verse, uh, uh, verse 4, And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, these tribulation saints. Now look at verse 5. But the rest of the dead, those are the unsaved dead ones, did not live again until the thousand years were finished, this is the first resurrection. So the first resurrection is anybody who's saved, Jesus first, the church second, after the tribulation, Old Testament Israel and the tribulation, saints. All right, now a thousand years are going to pass and there'll be a second resurrection. Verse 6, Jesus says this, the Holy Spirit speaks to us, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, over these people, the second death has no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. What a glorious future we have. 
to sit on the throne and to rule and reign with Christ. And in his administration and in his government, he may see Pastor Joe Whiting. I'm going to set you over the continent of Africa. And then underneath you will be other people and underneath you will be other people and bring all honor and glory and praise to me. And who knows what kind of responsibilities we all will have. But there'll be ruling and reigning responsibilities for those faithful in the church. And also then, of course, for Israel and the tribulation. So that's the resurrection of the, of the believers. Now, the, one of the most incredible scenes we'll find in Scripture, verse 7, Revelation 20, verse 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, we have served the Lord now for a thousand years, Satan has had no influence on the human heart, Satan will be released from his prison. Entering the kingdom... At the end of the seven years, everybody, will be men and women like you and I. They're going to have flesh and blood bodies like ours. They, were going to, they will need to eat and exercise and sleep, and they'll work, and they'll raise vegetables, and they'll raise families. Everybody who enters the kingdom, according to Isaiah 4, is a believer. They're the only ones who survived the tribulation, true, genuine believers. It's going to be a glorious time. Here's the problem. They're going to have families. And their little babies are going to grow up and need to be born again. And many of the children in the thousand-year kingdom will not believe in Christ. Although he's seated on the throne in Israel, although you could bring them to Israel and show them the Messiah in glorified form, they will choose not to believe in Jesus. Isn't that hard to believe? Where is the devil during this time? He's bound up in a bottomless pit. He has no influence. He's not going to try to deceive them or tempt them. It is their own sinful heart that brings hardness and rejection of the gospel. We don't need Satan to do that. We're born that way. Do you see the depth of the depravity of man's heart? Verse 7. Satan's released from prison. He will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. There'll be so many unbelievers on this planet at the end of the thousand years that Satan will be able to capture their hearts, raise them up in open defiance of God, and, 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 and employ them to destroy, try to destroy Jesus one last time. And how big is this army that will come against Jesus? As many as the sand of the sea. Does it show you how wicked our hearts are? We are desperately wicked. Who can know it, Jeremiah says. Our hearts are wicked above all things. We are born that way. We need the gospel. But Satan's going to go and quickly raise up an army so many that you can't even count them. Now, where will you and I be? You and I are in the holy city, Jerusalem, with Jesus. And maybe we'll be on the edge of the, of the walls. Can you imagine? We're going to be standing up, maybe Little Faith Baptist Church. We all get one little corner of the wall. And we're standing up on the wall. And we're looking over and we see the wide open space around Jerusalem. And then we're looking and we see the devil coming across the plain. I don't know, maybe he's riding a horse or something. Who knows? And then behind him, we see a massive army. And the army's coming on all sides of our city, all around our city. And they're getting closer and closer until we can almost hear their horses and we can see their eyes. Can you picture this? We're up on the edge of the wall and we're thinking we are surrounded by the devil and a massive rebellion, rebellious army. 
Verse 9. They went up, this army of men that after 1,000 years, having rejected the Lord, will seek to kill him. They went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. That's you and I. We're in the word saints there. That's our dwelling place. And the beloved city, the city of Jerusalem. But listen, have no fear. The Lord's not going to say, Doug, pick up a bow and arrow and start shooting. Kind of like the Lord of the Rings movies. No, he's not going to do that. Simply as we're watching this army assemble under the auspices of the devil, fire comes down from heaven and consumes them all in one big violent firestorm. You are, going to, you are going to witness that as we stand on the walls of Jerusalem surrounded by the enemy one last time. Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil, who deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is the end of the devil. That is his conclusion. He knows he's going to the lake of fire. Jesus or somebody, some angel is going to take the devil, pick him up, and toss him into the lake of fire, and he will never, ever get out. He'll be tormented forever and forever and forever. And we will never have a threat of him again. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Does the devil know that? Yes, he does. He knows that's going to happen. So between now and then, what is he going to try to do to us? Destroy us. He will do whatever he can to destroy your family, husbands, wives, parents, children, church member, church member. He will seek to destroy anything that is of Christ. And he is more active, I think, now than ever before because he knows his time is short. We have one last snapshot before we close tonight. And I would say this maybe is the scariest day of creation. The scariest day of human history is right here in verse 20, in verse 11. Then I saw, John said, a great white throne. Maybe it's white picturing the very holiness of God. Great because the greatest king and the greatest judge sits on that throne. And John saw him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. Now, let's talk about that just briefly. In 2 Peter 3, in 2 Peter 3, John says, the unbelieving world scoffs at the flood. They scoff at the flood thinking that never really happened. Hmm, sounds like our day, doesn't it? And they also say, where is the Lord and where is the promise of his coming? He hasn't showed up, so he's not going to come. Every day clicks off like the next. Tomorrow, I guarantee, they say, is gonna, the sun's going to rise just like it did today. And then Tuesday, it's going to rise just like it did yesterday. You know, on and on. Every day is the same, and nothing's ever going to change. God says in 2 Peter 3, no. I'm going to intervene again in the affairs of the world, and I'm going to do something to creation. It's called the Big Bang. He's going to cause all of the elements to pull apart. 
Now, I was just reading a book about World War II and the end of World War II with the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and then how Nagasaki got the atomic bomb. And as the atomic bomb dropped out of the plane, I think it was the Enola Gay for Hiroshima, as the bomb was falling, it exploded above the city of Hiroshima. And as that bomb exploded, it sent out a brilliant shock of light that people miles away, if they were looking at it, they burned their eyeballs just by looking at it. But then the shock of the radiation and the heat dissolved the flesh of anybody nearby. It actually just evaporated them. The Bible says the atomic bomb um, boiled, their, uh, boiled their blood literally boiled the blood instantly and they just exploded and, dis- and disintegrated. And people that were a little bit on the outside of the aftershock then had radiation damage and they were deformed. People jumped into the river to try to avoid the burning sensation without realizing that the river in Hiroshima was boiling instantly. It went from a normal river to instant boiling with the atomic bomb. That was one atomic bomb with a f- I don't know. I'm not sure. Was it one atom that they split and that was the energy of one atom? Second Peter 3, God says, he is going to, in the future, pull apart every element. He's going to divide all the elements. All of the water, H2O, is going to be broken up to hydrogen and oxygen and those atoms will explode. Do you know the flash of light and intense heat as the entire heavens and earth dissolve? The Bible says they will melt with fervent heat. Maybe that's the lake of fire. And then people will be cast into this lake of fire, the remnant of our current heavens and earth. The Lord Jesus returns, and all he has to do is stop sustaining. You know, this chair is made up of spinning molecules. There's a nucleus, and there's electrons that are spinning rapidly around it. And they're spinning so rapidly, it appears to be a solid fixture. But it's really, there's a lot of empty space as things are rotating around there. And all the Lord has to do is simply break that apart, and you've got the most catastrophic melting of fervent heat as God dissolves his creation. That's the idea of the great white throne. Humanity, the unsaved dead, will be raised up, but the entire earth underneath them and everything will be just melted. It'll be melted with intense and fervent heat. All right, so... That's what it says in verse 11. Whose face, Jesus Christ's face, the earth and the heavens simply fled away, dissolved and burned up, and there was found no place for them. I think meaning no place for the unsaved to hide. And I saw the dead, these are the unsaved dead, small and great. Great kings, small common people, standing before God, and books were opened. Books. Books are opened. And as the books are opened, it is the sinful deeds of that individual. So a book will be opened of a certain unsaved person at the great white throne, and all of their sinful deeds and actions and thoughts and everything is listed out, and some will have volumes maybe, I mean, thick books. And God will judge them according to their deeds. The more wickedness they performed, the greater punishment in hell. The more moral they were, the less punishment in hell. But you're talking, that's still a lake of fire. So regardless of how you look at it, whether you're being punished little or much, you're still separated from God and his glory in a lake of fire forever. Here's how the word of God says it. 
I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. The books were opened, plural. Notice that it's plural books. And another book, a singular book, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. We who believe in Christ, our sin is paid in full. Not one sin will be mentioned. There is no condemnation, no guilt ever for us. But for the unsaved, every wicked deed is recorded and will be brought to light. And they will be judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. But this book that was opened, which is the book of life, their names are missing from it. Verse 13 says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it. All the unsaved dead that were either lost at sea or died and their bodies in the water. And death, this great gullet that swallows up every individual. And Hades, the storage place for all the unsaved dead of all time, delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This now is the second death. They died once physically, and now they will finally be cast into the lake of fire where the beast, false prophet, and the devil are. It's going to be the most horrifying day of humanity. It's bad enough right now that they're in Hades, which is torment, but someday they will be cast into the lake of fire, judged according to the depth of and the wickedness of their works. Where will you and I be? It doesn't say that we'll be able to see this. But can you imagine if we were able to see it and we saw friends and family that at one time we walked with on earth and now they're facing the judgment of God and they're being cast into the lake of fire forever. Never to get out. Ever. But you know, God is a God of love and justice, and he can be satisfied. Here's why. He has done absolutely everything he can to provide salvation for us. Right? He has done absolutely everything to save our souls from that condemnation in hell. And yet these people refused and rejected it over and over and over. Or maybe they didn't hear it. The Bible says, how can they be saved unless they hear it? And how can they hear it unless somebody preaches it? And how can somebody preach it unless they're sent? Did God send anybody to preach the gospel to the world? Who? Us. Us. It's possible through your preaching of the gospel this week, isn't, listen to this, it's possible that somebody you talked to this week at work could be rescued from this scene because you overcame a fear. You overcame some fear and trepidation about bringing up Jesus. They could be rescued from this horrible scene because they could find Jesus and trust him. Through your testimony, like Romans 10 says, you preach, they hear, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. Who knows? Isn't that a wonderful thing? Isn't it amazing what God has entrusted to the church? He's given us a huge responsibility. Huge responsibility. That with joy and delight, we should go out and do. It should be joyful and delightful to let people know, here's where you're headed. Here's what God has done for his glory and honor and for his name's sake. Trust Jesus and be saved. That's our responsibility. That's what God has sent us to do. 
verse 15, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Then only believers are alive. Only believers then will merge into this eternal state for the next two Sundays. We'll talk about the eternal state where there's no devil, there's no sin, there's no presence of sin, there's no ability to sin. It's the conclusion of Satan's rebellion that infiltrated the race of mankind. So here's my final challenge. There's two challenges tonight. My first challenge is this. You have been called to deliver the greatest news of the gospel to a lost and dying world. And if we don't do it, who will? The unsaved aren't going to do it. They hate God. The angels can't do it. They're not in body form. Um, The unsaved angels certainly aren't going to do it. He's left it to you and I. And by preaching and proclaiming the good news this week, whether it's through a gospel tract, maybe say, hey, you know what? We studied this in church on Sunday. I just, I want to share this with you. Where are you at spiritually? What do you believe spiritually? I don't know. Maybe have your Bible open and say, well, just, you know, here's what we read on Sunday. And I just want to find out where are you at with this? Do you believe Jesus died for your sins? Do you understand what that means? And I mean, I don't know. It would just be, I think somebody would say, wow, you really care about me. You know, they may say, get out of here. I don't want to listen to it. But hey, at least you tried, right? So my first challenge is this event in human in the future of human, the human race is going to happen. We are headed at mock speed to this place. What will you do? So just, I don't want to lay any condemnation or guilt because that's the law. I want to motivate you by God's grace and love. Just do it because you're just over, you're bubbling over with it, okay? What's my second challenge? It's Second Peter 3. Because all of this present world will dissolve with fervent heat, and the earth and the heaven will, will be gone. Peter says, in Second Peter chapter 3, because of these things, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holiness and in conduct? Because this world is fastly going to disappear, then what kind of persons ought we to be? What manner of life ought we to have? I want people this week to see in you the love and the life of Christ. I want them to see men and women who are not covetous for the things of the world, who are not playing with the sin and corruption of the world, but are separate. We're pointing people happily to a joyful and a loving God, but we're not, we're not compromising with the corruption of this world because this world is going away, and we ought to be a certain type of person we should be a Christ, Christian, a Christ follower, a Christian. So I'm going to challenge you, first of all, get the gospel out. And secondly, just make sure that you're not putting your effort and energy into things that will be lost and taken away. Put your things into eternal riches, eternal glory. All right? I love that Second Corinthians 4 passage. We look not at things which are seen, which are temporary, but we look at the things which are unseen, which are eternal. All the things of real value are things you're not going to be able to see, taste, and touch this week. But I'll tell you what, in the next seven days, I will guarantee the majority of every day will be seen, tasting, and touching. And those are all things that are temporary. So put time into the things that are eternal. God's word and people will be forever. 
Father in heaven, thank you for this text. There's, just, there's a lot in this text with the binding of Satan and the ruling of the saints and then the final battle of Satan against the saints of Jerusalem and against our Savior. The fire of God coming down and Satan being cast in the lake of fire and then the great white throne judgment of the dead. Wow, we're almost overwhelmed that that could all be in one chapter. But it does show us clearly, Father, that you win, that sin is dealt with, and confined into a lake of fire, the devil, the wicked angels, and all of the lost human race, which gives us even a greater fire to get the gospel out this week. We don't know how much time we have. This, the, this planet is finite. Its days are numbered. Give us boldness and passion and lots of love to deliver the great news of the gospel, just like the Apostle Paul and the others did throughout the church age. Give us the boldness to do it now in these latter days of the earth. Thank you, Father, so much also that you are going to dissolve this temporary heaven and earth and bring about a new one. So we shouldn't put all of our time and energy into this world. We need to be thinking of the things which will last forever and making sure our priorities match up with Scripture. Thank you for your loving grace. Thank you for our wonderful Savior and the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. May Jesus Christ be praised now and forever. Amen. Amen.